Welcome to another episode of Goldwater Scholar Highlights, a podcast where we interview notable Goldwater scholars and honorable mentions on their educational backgrounds, their current research, and their careers. For our scholars and guests who are tuning in, this is a great way to learn from the science and career experiences of others in the Goldwater Scholar community. You can subscribe to our podcast show on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and Spotify, and you can receive updates through our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter. All right, now the guest that we have on today double majored in chemistry and human biology from Michigan State University. She is now a PhD candidate in bioengineering at UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco, working in Professor Sanjay Kumar's laboratory. This is Kayla Wolf. Kayla, can you tell us a bit about your background? Sure. Well, first of all, thanks for having me. Really excited to uh, talk with everyone and also be on the other end of the recording, as I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. Um, but yeah, so my background, as you described, is in chemistry and human biology. Um, I did, in undergraduate, I did a lot of research in polymer synthesis and um and tissue engineering related works, specifically in spinal cord repair. And that came together in my, what I decided to do for a PhD, which is looking at how cells move through brain matrix. So our lab is really interested in the central nervous system. And we want to know how cells how they mechanically move and they interact with their physical surroundings. And one of the areas this becomes a really important um, thing to understand is in cancer. So um, we study a particularly aggressive type of brain cancer called glioblastoma. And uh, it's aggressive in part because it's extremely invasive. So if you see a patient's MRI, you'll see the tumor show up as this bright, small region. But in reality, there's cells, single cancer cells that have already invaded much farther than that obvious tumor region. And Mm -hmm. what happens is when you try to treat this cancer, a surgeon can go in and remove that bulk tumor. But of course, the brain is very precious tissue, so you don't want to take out more than you have to. Um, and unfortunately, there's there's not a good way to go in and get all of those single cells out. And so after that uh, bulk tumor is removed, um, patients are usually treated with chemo and radiotherapy, but some of those single cells that are hiding in the other parts of the brain, they become resistant to those therapies and eventually turn into more tumors. And so um, the projects that I'm working on are to understand how are those cells so aggressive and invasive and how are they actually moving through that environment? Um, So, Mm. yeah, it's been keeping me busy for a few years now (laughs) in my PhD. Um, Yeah, it's really intriguing stuff. So what what are some things that you found so far that are different about these cells versus normal, typical cells? Yeah, so I look, I've been looking specifically at a protein called CD44. Um, it's a cell surface protein, and a cell 
is if you if you are new to cell biology, um, so cells have they have a cytoskeleton that functions much like our skeleton, and they have small molecules called myosins on this cytoskeleton that functions like our muscle system. And so they're able to contract and push and um, move their way through matrix. And so this protein CD44, um, that is one of the surface proteins that connects that outer skeleton or the inner skeleton to the outer physical world called extracellular matrix. So it's kind of like the interface between um, your body and the world like a foot. <laughs> <laughs> so it's what they used to walk around. And so um, this particular protein is interesting because the brain has a very unique matrix composition compared to other tissues in the body. So most tissues have a lot of collagen, which forms these big fibers that cells hang on to. Um, the brain is very soft. It's very squishy. And it has very little of that collagen in a lot of the, the regions. Instead, it has a lot of hyaluronic acid. And CD44 can specifically bind to hyaluronic acid. And that hyaluronic acid is one of the matrix, pro, one of the, it's not a protein, but um, it's one of the components in that um, extracellular matrix that contributes to that softness and that lack of fibrosity that, that is observable in the brain. So our question, and my, my question specifically is, how is this protein CD44 contributing to cell motility? And specifically, how is it coordinating with that cytoskeleton to move cells through the matrix? And so I've been working on a project looking at that and seeing that this CD44 protein can um, support a morphology and a type of invasion that we really observe when cells are in the context of soft brain matrix. It's HA rich. And this is a different morphology and cytoskeletal structure than you see in a lot of um, experiments where you're doing, where you're using cells that are stuck to tissue culture plastic. Um, so I, if you've not worked with cells or tissue culture, um, the way that we study a lot of these different diseases is to extract cells from the body and then stick them to plastic and give them some food that makes them happy. <laughs> um, but, you know, these cells came out of the brain and they're used to a very different physical environment than they see when you, when you move them there. And the whole field of cell mechanobiology is centered in, on this idea that cells respond very differently and they behave very differently when they're in a mechanical or physical environment that is mm. like the tissue that they came from or should be in. Mm. Um, so yeah, I've been finding a lot about how those cells are using their cytoskeleton in that context of brain matrix. Well, so what sort of techniques do you use to investigate that, that investigate the motility of these cells and um, what sort of uh, experimental analyses do you use for that? Yeah, I'm a professional gel maker. <laughs> so we, we 
you can isolate a lot of these matrix components and then um, recapitulate some of the matrix in the lab. And what this does is allows allows me to um, to isolate how the cells are behaving in the context of this um, specific type of matrix. So it's definitely a very reductionist approach, um, but it allows us to it allows us to get this nice, precise understanding of uh, the mechanisms that cells are using to interact with the matrix. Um, so, and then we can we can take that mechanism and test it in a variety of tissue culture platforms that are more or less similar to brains. So, for example, um, one of the experiments I did was to take cells, put them into a gel that feels and looks like brain, but isn't quite as complex in its composition and then see what they did, and then repeat that experiment in a tissue slice of brain. And so then you can compare. So a lot of my day is spent um, building platforms to study this, so like tiny brain-like gels, <laughs> and also then doing the tissue culture, uh, looking at the cells, how they're behaving, um, extracting them, looking at their protein composition, and uh, again, cross-referencing that with other types of model systems um, to see if we see the same results and if they're consistent. Very interesting, Kayla. So what got you interested in this field of work with studying brain cancer cells? Well, so I, I, um, as I mentioned, my background's in chemistry. So I had I did a number of research experiences during my undergraduate career, um, everything from clinical psychophysiology to I did some work in entomology for a summer. Um, but there were two labs that I spent the most time in and two projects that I worked on the most. So one of them was polymer synthesis for tissue engineering. Um, so I was building, I was synthesizing some novel polymers that could be used as tissue constructs to rebuild tissue, ideally as like a therapeutic. Um, for example, if you have a bone fracture and it's not easy for your body to heal from that, you could implant this polymer and it would grow. Um, I moved from that to a more material science, but tissue engineering work where we were building scaffolds that could support regrowth of peripheral nerves and also scaffolds that could promote the regrowth of spinal cord. Um, so, so that would be really useful in, in someone who's had a spinal cord injury and is partially or um, quite significantly paralyzed. Um, and then peripheral nerve, um, this kind of damage can happen a lot of ways, but um, the point of the scaffolds is to help guide and promote that growth. And the central nervous system doesn't regrow easily. Um, so that was, I had done all this work in tissue engineering type fields from a materials chemistry perspective. And it became apparent to me that if you, if you want to, if I wanted to do this work really well, I need to understand the biology a lot more deeply. <laughs> and mm -hmm. this lab being a very cell mechanics and cell matrix interaction focus lab was a natural progression in that investigation. And it 
was really convenient and nice that the that um, the lab is also working on the central nervous system since I had some experience in that. Um, and you know, I care a lot about problems that are hard and important and <laughs> brain cancer probably falls into that category. <laughs> um, so anyway, yeah, it, it really was a good fit from what I had been doing and what I wanted to learn and work on. Cool. So is the, is the long-term goal to go into a career that focuses on brain cancer? Yeah. So my, I, so <laughs> my long-term goal is to continue studying how cells and tissues are constructed and forming and growing and interacting. Um, I'm still in the process of thinking about what specific systems I might want to look at this in. Um, so I am really interested in those material properties and how the cells behave, um, but I, I'm pretty open to what biological questions I'm answering with that, um, so we'll see. <laughs> and I am planning to continue in academia, so um, my next immediate steps is to be looking for a postdoc position and get some more experience and um, work on what I'd like to work on is a little more materials focus since I've spent a lot of time now working in the biology. I think it's it would be great to refine my my chemistry and material skills, especially since especially since uh, it's been a few years since I've <laughs> been been um, really in deep study of those properties. So um, so that's what I'd like to do next. And then, as I said, really focus on what how I'd like to build a lab and which questions are, do I want to start my lab answering? Very exciting stuff. What, what is, has anything caught your eye in materials that you're particularly leaning towards? Oh, well, <laughs> so I just got back from a conference followed by a short meeting that was like a conference. So right now that's a very hard question to answer because I've, just seen about 50 really crazy, awesome projects. <laughs> and it's, it's a little bit hard to say, you know, I think there's, for me, uh, there's always a handful of projects that I'm like, that's really interesting. And I'm glad that you're working on it because I don't really <laughs> want to. <laughs> there's also a handful of projects that I'm like, that's really interesting. And I would love to work on that. And if I could tell you what, what was the pattern in those interesting projects? I mean, I would love if you could tell me that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, we'll see. Um, I still love doing synthesis and I'm, I really like trying to understand how the network of these soft tissues is contributing to their overall behavior and mechanics. Um, so maybe something along that lines, but we'll, uh, you know, maybe talk to me in a year and I'll tell you what I ended up doing. <laughs> sure, man. It's a wide open field. There's a lot of different things going on, I'm sure. Oh, so yeah. In, so what what year are you in graduate school? Yeah, so I'm uh, just at the end of my fifth year. Uh, so starting my sixth year here and then um, I'll be graduating in May. So um, coming up to the on the scale of one to PhD, it's a very short amount of time left. <laughs> so, 
So Congrats. wrapping, wrapping projects and <laughs> starting to think about putting that thesis together, all of those things. Congratulations. Well, lo Thanks. looking back, is there is there any sort of advice you would give to yourself during your undergraduate years or even four years ago, beginning graduate school? <laughs> um, if I could do that, I would have had a three-year PhD. <laughs> 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 I think there's, there's a lot of things I could say. Um, let's see if there's a few specifics. So I'll start by saying that I remember coming into undergrad and I, I didn't, I, I knew that I really enjoyed science, um, but I didn't have a very, I hadn't had a lot of exposure to how science actually works. Um, it was more like the kind of exposure that you would get as, you know, a student in grade school. that's like, science is cool. <laughs> and you can change colors of different things. <laughs> So I remember going to this seminar when I first started my freshman year of college that was about, it was probably one of the first few weeks I was on campus, and it was about how to read a scientific paper. And it was like, okay, you know, first it's great to read the abstract and then the introduction, and then you might want to skip the methods to start and go to the results and then the discussion, and I was like, who's ever going to use this, <laughs> which was in retrospect, extremely naive of me. <laughs> and, and I recognized not too long after I started doing some undergraduate research, how incredibly naive that was. So since then, I, I've been a lot more intentional, intentional about trying to know what I don't know and, and trying to um, figure out what's going to be important to understand for the next steps. Um, so I, I, going back to your question of what would I do if I was telling myself advice for my first, second year, early years, um, I, I don't think I would have done too much differently. I think one of the most, one of the things that took me the longest to realize is how important it is to understand not just the work that's going on in the field, but how, how people are contributing to the work, um, so like, you know, there's, it's when you start getting into this very, um, when you start getting into a subfield or some part of a field, you realize like the scientists who are doing the work are really driving what questions are being asked and how they're being answered and, um, and what are gonna be the next steps. And those are individual humans. <laughs> <laughs> they're mm -hmm. not robots. They're not all knowing. <laughs> they're kind of, they're using their skills and expertise to take guesses at what's going to be the most important next question. And um, how they approach that is really dependent on the person. And so it's interesting to understand how science is being done on an individual lab level. Um, I think this kind of shows up in the way that people use Twitter for science as opposed mm. to Google Scholar, say. So like when you search for papers on Google Scholar, you're really searching by the subject matter. If you're keeping up with labs on Twitter, I mean, you're, you're keeping up with science based on who's doing it, um, which is a very different sorting process. <laughs> and mm. I think that it's a little bit different way of thinking. And I, coming into it, had really only thought of it from the 
the Google Scholar approach. Um, so I would tell myself to think about it from the the other way around as well. <laughs> and then so, of knowing, course, so so part of your part of your transition to to, to engaging in science in, in a way that you find more deeper is actually following groups of groups of scientists all working on one thing uh, and, and and that involved using using sources like Twitter just to follow one person I yes that, on a more general level like like for example reading papers and paying attention to who published it and when did they publish it and what was the other work they were doing at the time um, mm. and um, how different people have, like who they've worked with. So you can definitely see patterns in how someone has been trained, um, what kind of perspectives they're bringing to the table. And also just getting to know people in the field. I think, um, you know, we always say like science is collaborative and like science isn't done in a vacuum. <laughs> but what does that actually mean? <laughs> um, and it's it comes down to these details in the day where you're like reaching out and being like, I heard that you did this experiment with this. How did it actually go? Like, what what was uh -huh. the hard parts that you didn't talk about in the paper? <laughs> uh -huh. so it's, it's a lot of these details that um, that do actually become important and, and is centered around the idea of knowing the other scientists <laughs> and connecting with them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really funny you say that. I was, I was talking to someone the other day about why... You know, there aren't many books on how to practice science as far as the, you know, little nitty bitty things go, like how to keep up with literature or, I don't know, reading in between the lines to figure out the, an overarching like 10 year motivation from one laboratory. It, yeah. I, it's, it's interesting that there's not a lot of information out this, like this out, out online. Yeah, there's. I, I think that those resources are starting to be built. Um, I've certainly seen a few, but it's it's honestly one of those things that's hard to learn without just getting into it and making a lot of mistakes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I guess there's one other thing I would have told early myself is um, I was coming definitely from a very materials chemistry perspective and entering this bio world. And it took me a little while to appreciate how um, the differences in that approach and us both in experiments um, and how you like what kinds of questions you're trying to answer, what's the motivation, um, also the implications for patients. I think there's a lot of great reasons to do science besides improving healthcare, but my focus right now that is part of one of the goals of bioengineering and biomedical engineering is improving patient outcomes and healthcare. And it took me a while to understand what that really looked like. Um, even things like as simple as um, there's a lot of, a lot of, in some ways we're very, in, in a bioengineering field, or a life science-based field, we have come to realize how important things like bioethics are. Um, how, how do we conduct experiments um, with clinical trials? Like, how does all of that work? 
And that was something that was very new for me. And I think I would have liked to spend more time uh, digging into that early. I eventually did, but mm -hmm. <laughs> understanding that early, I think would have made me appreciate how the work is moving a little bit more. Like, why do we have to use model systems? Why do we choose the model systems that we do? How do we make them more predictive of the actual response? These are all questions that come down to that central topic of um, wanting to improve healthcare, but also respecting patients and um, mm -hmm. all of that process. Yeah, I imagine that's a tough balance to walk at times. And I, yeah. I'm using clinical samples for, for experiments. It, yeah. It's a lot of ethical questions to think about. I actually think, and as the more I've thought about those questions from my perspective, I would love to see other fields think about those kinds of questions too, especially like um, people who are working on technology and computer science. Um, they have been really changing our lives on a very deep and intimate level. <laughs> and machine learning and yeah, I think it's no secret that we're we're at a point of questioning the ethics around that, but we also in you know in bioengineering we have a little bit more of formal constructs for how to ask that and how to approach it um whereas i think that we're still figuring that out in other fields um and i think is like it especially in terms of graduate training that would be really great to incorporate more of that <laughs> but yeah 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 getting de yeah definitely i mean so science is just moving so fast in so many different areas that reevaluating our standards and limits and what our boundaries are is, is uh, yeah, it, it's still very important and, and difficult to do. Yeah. Um, so let's move on to um, any sort of, so, so moving past your science in your graduate school, are there any extracurriculars you're interested in? Yeah, well, I, I alluded to at the beginning um, but I'll talk about it now, which is that one of the things I've worked out, worked on outside of the lab is a podcast. Um, so it is called Double Shelix. I've been working on it with one of my bioe colleagues here at Berkeley, um, Sally Winkler. So she and I have been uh, making these episodes where we talk to a variety of people in science um, about issues from everything to the graduate school grind to uh, inclusivity, diversity, equity, um, to how, how to progress to next career steps, um, a lot of different topics that graduate students uh, from a variety of backgrounds might be interested in. And so that started at the end of 2016 and um, really took off the following years, we started to get things moving. And so we've been continuing to build these episodes and as a resource for, for people who are entering graduate school, uh, we have faculty listeners who um, like to hear what we're thinking and perspectives that we're coming from and contribute as well. So um, it's, it's a really nice, platform for having these conversations that we felt like we were hearing people have, you know, at the end of the day or in the break room. Um, and we were hearing them over and over and we wanted 
a way to to provide those conversations for other people who maybe didn't have someone to talk about them with um, and in a way that's accessible for for graduate students so I know for me I spent a lot of time pipetting (laughs) (laughs) podcasts are a really great way to make that more interesting (laughs) so yeah (laughs) yeah so yeah it's been a really a really interesting experience um and that's really really cool How, how long have you been doing that for yeah, so uh, like I said, it started around 2016, but really picking up lately. So we're in a series right now that um, is called Journeys. And this is based on when when I talk to people and um, saw us having the same experience and ask them, like, how did you get the job that you're in now? Mm-hmm. Um, it very rarely is like, I went to undergrad and I knew I wanted to do this. And then I went to graduate school and I did that. And then I went and did that. Uh, and it's more like, well, I tried this thing and it was okay. So then I tried this other thing. And then I met this person that told me about this job and I didn't have another job. So I just applied for it. <laughs> so it's very nonlinear <laughs> um, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. and not at all the way that you would expect that your career to go. And so uh, we, we wanted to one, share some of these stories to help provide students with some reassurance that if it feels like it's a very random process that it's probably mm-hmm. still going to work out okay um, but also yeah, it demystifies the whole like linear career path thing and yes. I mean especially today it's just so it, that story is just so common and I think it'll even get more and more common because it, it we're also so much more interconnected now with technology too and yes. businesses merge and change so fast yeah, exactly. I mean, in one of our recent episodes, we had a guest who um, had a pretty long stint in musical career, <laughs> musical training, and then is now working in, in entrepreneurship. So um, wow. you never know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's really reassuring to know that people have all these different career paths and it's still, um, they can still make contributions to all of those spaces. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so last few questions, how do you handle work-life balance? Yeah, um, I, one of the aspects I love about graduate school is that it's very flexible. Um, and I personally don't need a lot of a lot of push to keep me going in the lab <laughs> or on reading papers or whatnot. So that abstract schedule works really well for me. I work when I can work and life happens. So I life when I need to life. And um, and I, I think that's actually been really a really successful system for me. So for, for example, um, I know that I do my best work in the mornings. I'm the kind of person that likes to do a lot long blocks of work. So I get up, I usually start off by doing paperwork or reading that I need to really focus on as the first part of my day. 
Um, if I don't have a lot of paperwork on or writing, for example, on that particular day, then I go into lab earlier. I can get a lot done before other people come in. <laughs> it's still mm -hmm. quiet. Um, <clears throat> usually I can finish up by a reasonable time in the evening. I try to plan my experiments so that I can avoid coming in on the weekends. It still happens. Cells, cells don't really care if it's Saturday. Um, <laughs> but like I said, I think for me, planning it out works really well. And knowing the ways that I function the best has worked really well. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And then, you know, there's been different life circumstances that have come up during graduate school. Graduate school is a long time, you know, five to six years. And it's pretty hard to not have other events happen during that time. I think it's a little bit unrealistic to expect that you're going to go that long unscathed by, um, by small crises or large crises. I was traveling a lot and I would put my bench work at the beginning of the week and then I would take my analysis with me on the plane. And then once I got to where I needed to be, I was there mentally. And then when I got back on the plane, I picked up whatever I was working on. Um, so yeah, it was a lot of planning, but I think it works pretty well. And it's, you know, you can't do everything, but you can make time for anything. So mm -hmm. you just, there's a lot of prioritization involved. <laughs> That's why I'm really bad at, um, at using my Twitter. <laughs> it's, because, oh. like, it's my lower priority. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a good thing to stay off social media yeah. more and prioritize other things. <laughs> Yeah, you know, so, uh, but yeah, that's, uh, that's how it's been working for me. So Kayla, for our scholars who are interested in listening to your podcast, where do they, where can they go to get that information? Great. Yeah. Well, um, we have, first of all, you can find all our episodes on our website, which is doublesheelakes.com. Um, you can also find us on iTunes, and we would love if you could subscribe and like us. We're also on Twitter, um, and so just search us. I'm sure you'll find us pretty easily, and check out our episodes. I think they can be a really great resource if you're considering graduate school or you're in the, in the throes of graduate school um, or even considering your future career steps, so... Um, yeah, check us out. Yeah, that sounds great, Kayla. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's Double Shelix. Go ahead and check that podcast show out. And uh, once again, you can keep up with our podcast show, Goldwater Scholar Highlights, through our social media pages on Facebook and Twitter by searching for the Goldwater Scholar community. You can subscribe to us on the Apple Podcast app, Google Play, and Spotify. Thank you so much again for listening, and we will be with you soon with our next guest on the show.